Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and we are back for another episode. And you're in for a very big treat today because we have with us Neha Gupta. She is the Chief Executive Officer of True Office Learning. And I heard her speak at ECI's Impact 2019, and it was truly one of the most unique presentations I had heard. I went to a presentation which I thought was going to be on innovative compliance techniques for training. But what I came away from was a much broader appreciation of behavioral science around compliance programs and also the metrics that are available to the compliance officer that are literally sitting in this big data lake called your company. And so with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, thank you for taking the time to visit with me today and welcome. Thank you so much, Tom. So excited to be here. And you caught on to the passion pretty well. So (laughs) people are the most interesting and scary thing about all our organizations, right? Maybe you could start with giving our audience a little bit of your professional background and how you got to sit in the CEO chair. Sure. That's a great question. And life is 50% serendipity and probably 50% plans that never quite turn out that way. (laughs) So I'm actually more of a business person. I am not uh, really a lawyer by trade. I am a data science nut. So I'm an engineer and business strategy person by academic background. And really what I've done over the course of my life is run business functions across a lot of heavily regulated verticals, be it insurance, be it financial services, be it nonprofits or even operational organizations. And for me, the reason ethics and compliance is so meaningful and kind of how I got into the CEO seat is it's amazing to me how little of a business conversation we have in compliance. Right. And so for me, it's always been an interesting journey as a business person who eventually, as I took on larger and larger roles, most recently at Citigroup, running their institutional technology business as CAO, I basically had ethics and compliance along with employee engagement functions that I was responsible for, for reporting to the board and to the regulators. And it became very evident what a limited conversation we have today, not just externally, but internally when it comes to these areas of changing human behavior and understanding our employees. So that's kind of where the data passion or the data science background triangulated with saying, well, how do we make this less of just an art or anecdotal guess and check? That's what got me into really being a very early stage employee at True Office, a company that had just had the right founding roots for saying, wait, now I can have a two-way dialogue with people using technology And I can actually capture what they think and how they will behave in various situations. So that's kind of how the journey got started. It's been a fun ride since, but I took over the organization about two years ago. So it's been a pretty fun and crazy ride. Sounds like it. Frankly, I had this long list of questions and an outline I was going to go over with you today. But when we were prepping in the green room, you said a phrase that I have to start with and you hinted at it at the end of your introduction which is mapping human behavior and how a training company is really uniquely suited to do that. And more importantly, why the mapping of human behavior can be such a powerful tool, not simply so that a company will be compliant, but it will be an ethical organization dedicated to integrity. 
it is one of the reasons why I'm very passionate about learning, right? One of the things, obviously, our behavior is driven by the things we learn along the way. So it's one of the most meaningful ways to change it or shape it. But really, the reason training is the right vehicle for mapping human behavior is there are very few things in your organization that actually touch people at every level, right? If you think about the number of activities that everybody from the admin to the CEO of the company actually engages in, your mandatory compliance training program is actually probably one of the only few things that fall in that bucket, right? And so you have this unique opportunity where you have a captive audience realistically for anywhere from half an hour to six, seven, eight hours a year that everybody interacts with. But we do this as sort of this empty handed one way, I'm just going to push out information to you journey. And we miss this golden opportunity to know, wait, how would my administrative staff handle this versus my executive versus my technology versus my marketing, right? Because in reality, your point about how do we use this not just to ensure compliance, but actually talk about ethics and integrity, in reality, you're not going to put everybody in crisis, right? There's just no way. You don't know when which employee will face their sort of ethical conflict or their even regulatory or legal conflict. However, you need a level of readiness in all of them for the risks that are relevant to them. And the only way you can understand that is sort of the age-old tactic of simulation, right? There's a reason why, whether it's the military, whether it's pilots when they train for Air Force, they all do drills. They do simulations because you're not going to run into every incident. If I think companies ran into people running into violations in real life at that same rate, there would be a lot more lawsuits than any of us would, <laughs> would like. But essentially, you do want to know how would that person act, right? And you do want to build that muscle memory in that average employee of, wait, I've seen this before. I know what to do, right? And so that principle of using this two-way dialogue when you have everybody from the sort of lowest person in the totem pole to the most senior, powerful executive, how do you use that opportunity to learn a little bit about them, shape and change and modify what they told you? And then help build that almost in as a habit so you can be a bit more secure as an organization. How do I move from that to utilizing the data that's generated either through this training or another silo or source of data within the company to almost as a continuous improvement loop? Yeah, you said that so well, because one of the things that I tell people, despite being the CEO of a company that uses training as the primary vehicle, is anybody that tells you a one-and-done training effort can change the world is lying to you. There is just no such thing, right? You have to use both the training experience as well as the data as a continuous life cycle, because as humans, we're just inherently susceptible to a forgetting curve, right? If you think about the number of details any of us handle in a day, we will forget the thing we started the day with by the time we kind of end the day. So it always has to be a continuous conversation. We, from a company perspective, for that reason, leverage an ecosystem of tools. So we normally actually start with saying, let's do a foundational training experience. Then from there, let's use that data to actually send out a nudge. And let's use that data to send out an intelligent nudge so that rather than sending it randomly about any topic, you're actually looking at behavioral trends for your population and then sending that out. What we're moving to, which is the power of technology, right? So the tech geek side in me comes in handy, is using artificial intelligence, right? Which is now that nudge, we're piloting this with customers in Q3, 
that nudge actually goes in and says, let me go check Tom's performance on that foundational experience. Where did Tom struggle a lot? What were situations that really stumped Tom? You know what? The lowest performing situations that he stumbled on are the ones I'm going to nudge him on versus Neha was terrible at these other situations. And even though it's just one single nudge universally deployed around the company on any platform, each of us is getting something very personalized to how we did. And what we recommend is to not even end the journey there, but honestly, then go on to a retention check that you do about another quarter or two out. And what that is, is we call it compass, but it's a very sort of rapid five minute coffee exercise kind of diagnostic to say, you know what, not just these formal events, but there's so much informal learning that people get from their microcultures, from the managers, from seeing behaviors of others, all the internal communication campaigns. What actually stuck? What did they retain, right? And all three sets of these behavioral data, because each of those elements also produce data for us and feed IQ, our analytics engine, you use all of that. But what we actually recommend to people is now you take that data and you marry it with your hotline and incident response data, and you marry it with your risk assessment data, because not every risk is going to be of the same importance to you. You're going to say, hey, I care much more about harassment issues than I do maybe about somebody using the office printer after hours, right? That may or may not be as meaningful to me. When you get those trends and you're able to see very clearly what parts of your organization have a higher propensity to behaving in a way that's misaligned with the company, you go and take a look at your investigations data and you say, do I see the same number of complaints from that part of the business? If I don't, here are people who in simulation are not able to make effective decisions What's the likelihood that they're able to do an amazing job at it in real life, right? And we've had customers that have had fascinating journeys of literally just even doing that paper exercise. Obviously, if you've got a team of BI analysts or you've got a data warehouse or you're using sort of data intelligence platforms, all of this can be done automatically for you. But even if you just do this literally paper exercise question, they narrowed it down to a particular location where the performance was very disjointed on this very risky procedure of choosing to fix a machine yourself instead of flagging it, right, for a a central authority to come and work on it. They went to the local environmental health and safety manager for that location and said, hey, in behavioral simulation, we saw this. People really very often chose to bypass the process and just do this themselves. Do you see that happening on the ground? And what was fascinating for them is the person said, you know what? Recently, we've been under a lot of pressure. I've heard some rumors about this. Let's go talk to the team. And they were able to actually identify three issues proactively that became self-identified along with having the meaningful conversation, rather than in this case, having somebody lose a limb or have it be essentially a post-cause sort of after the fire root cause analysis. So the data, to be honest, in terms of how do you use it, the sophistication really depends on you as a company. It's a myth that you need fancy tools in order to do it, right? We've designed IQ to kind of work out of the box where I can literally sit paper and pen and say, okay, here's my trends. Here's a particular part of the organization. Here's the exact number of hotline calls I got from there. I'm just going to go have that conversation. It struck me in your description that, let me step back, I'm a huge advocate of HR as being one of your frontline operationalizers of compliance. And I say that because in my corporate experience, HR was one of the corporate disciplines that touched employees the most often. 
certainly pre-employment interviews, hires, onboarding, evaluations, quarterly, semi-annually or annually. Then annually, we receive discretionary financial bonus, certainly ongoing evaluations. And if there's a separation, uh, HR was a part of that as well. It seems to me that some of these strategies you're advocating could actually be implemented by HR at any or all of these multiple touch points during the entire employment lifecycle. Completely, right? And we've done work with organizations at times to better assess high potentials for who has the highest ethical quotient, right? We've done work at times for even onboarding, right? How do you help set the value system in a new hire program? Because most companies are investing HR resources and compliance resources in that onboarding process to say, oh, no, we're going to bring you all in a room, right? We're going to sit you down and we're going to have this long conversation about what does it mean to be a part of our organization? Well, today you walk into that conversation and it's, it's sort of like what I call is like spray and pray. You talk a little bit about everything and you hope it sticks and you hope people will say something or ask questions. But in real life, that doesn't happen, right? It becomes sort of this hour to hour preaching session. Well, the power of data is, to your point, even for those HR individuals, they walk in into a smart classroom. They already know what this particular group of people struggled with. And then so they start the conversation saying, you know, guys, 23% of us thought that it's okay to leave out a particular candidate based on this particular trait or this criteria. Why do you think that is, right? Now you've kind of taken all the sting out of it. Now you could stand here and have the same conversation and say diversity is important to which everybody will nod their head uh, <laughs> and it wouldn't go anywhere, right? Now you get into a dialogue of my friend has a problem and people suddenly start raising their hands and say, well, you know, somebody could have thought that it's okay to do that because that probably indicates this person was this way, right? Now you can have a much more meaningful dialogue that changes the conversation from here's a set of policies or rules to here's how you apply them into real life situations that will happen to you. You've also described what I think is the requirements from the Department of Justice, at least two of their requirements around training. One is targeted training, give high risk training to those who are truly high risk. Or if a person is a control specialist or even a payroll specialist, they may require some type of different training than a BD specialist or a salesperson, and then effective training. How do you measure effectiveness? And you described quite well, I thought, the reminders and nudging that would go with a particular form of training. But I was wondering if you could give a few words about the tailored nature of your training. Sure. So the nudges and the life cycle is obviously important in saying we are not just taking effectiveness data and putting it to use. We actually focus on making sure that foundational learning and measurement experience is pretty tailored and also focused on effectiveness. So we use what is called as adaptive learning. It's a fairly often misused term, but really the truly adaptive learning, what it does is it changes every interaction that you have with the course based on how you've performed and who you are, right? So your content, your sequence, what assessment you get, everything changes continuously based on how you're performing. And that's the approach we take with training. So most of our solutions, when it's especially a risk-based program, it'll start with saying, tell me a little bit about yourself, right? Are you a manager? Are you in this function? Do you do these kind of things? And the course intelligently says, okay, I know all this about the learner. I'm just going to change what risks actually apply to them. And then as they go through the risk, the beauty of truly adaptive learning is 
will present them a situation to apply principles on. And if they're not effectively applying principles and making decisions, much like they would in real life, right? So this is why simulation is so near and dear to my heart. The system will give you action-reaction coaching and give you bite-sized feedback, but then actually not just do what traditional training does, right? Which is guess again, was an A, try B now, or let me just let you move forward, in which case you never get a chance to change how I think, right? So what we actually do is use technology and adaptive logic to present an equivalent alternate situation to the person. So they still on the same kind of conflict areas will get another situation that tests the same principles and lets them practice, really apply what they just learned into real life, simulate that. And only when the system sees, hey, they're actually now figuring out how to make the right set of decisions and they're able to apply this correctly, does it let them move forward. So the DOJ guidance, even for organizations that are not using the nudge and the retention check and really going through the full life cycle, just by function of doing kind of a scholar adaptive learning, they're actually getting everybody to 100% mastery and a personalized learning path within every standalone experience. Yeah, unfortunately, we are near end of our time today, but I greatly hope we can continue this conversation. I look forward to it. Thanks so much, Tom. If you're a compliance professional looking for a convenient and effective way to fulfill your continuing education requirements, go to fcpacompliancereport.com slash courses and choose from four hour-long training packages that will keep you current. That's fcpacompliancereport.com slash courses.